If you have a Bible, would you like to turn to Luke chapter 1? Well, Lord Jesus, you are altogether worthy. We are here to worship you. We know we shall worship you in spirit and in truth in a fuller and greater measure when we see you face to face. But we thank you for the gift of your spirit who helps us to worship you even now, not just in precious times like this when we can gather and worship together, but throughout this coming week in every kind of experience of life. We can offer ourselves, our souls and bodies as living sacrifices, which is our spiritual act of worship. And we come now, Lord, to think and reflect upon your word. We don't stand in judgment on it. We want to learn of it. So we may come to know you better and your ways more fully. To see you in your scriptures. To see you in the activities of men and women. So that we are more able, Lord, to live the life you've given us so graciously. In the power of your spirit and to the glory of your name. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Luke begins his uh, gospel with a couple of stories about mothers, which is a nice way to start a story, isn't it? In fact, Luke has more about women than any other gospel, which is quite radical, really, when you think of the first century. Women were seen but not heard. That was the sort of basic principle, and uh, altogether different now, we're glad to say. But Luke included lots of stories about women, and uh, he starts with two. We're going to go on to the second one. The first one focuses on Zechariah, but includes Elizabeth, so she has a, a visitation of God, but in a different way to Mary. We're reading Mary's story, verse 26. So when it says in the sixth month, of course, that's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. So in the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel. Then you just marvel at that. Angels can do marvellous things. They are just the messengers of God. That's all they are, messengers of God. But they are powerful beings. Most of the time they strike utter terror into the hearts of whoever sees them. And you know what Gabriel's task here is to be? This great mighty angel just has to pass on a message. He's a postman, basically. Just has to pass on a message to a girl in Nazareth. So sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. 
Then the angel left her. These days, motherhood is not highly regarded. Not as highly regarded as once it was, perhaps. And I think we need to reclaim that. In scripture, motherhood is very highly regarded. There are a number of people you only know because they were mothers. Elizabeth would be one of them. Here she would not be mentioned otherwise, simply because she becomes the mother of John the Baptist. And that at a point when she must have given up all hope ever of holding her own child in her own arms. And perhaps that's true of many people you know. While we celebrate Mother's Day, we need to remember that there are many women who would love to be married but are not. And many women who are married who would love to be mothers but are not. And many of those mothers would love to be grandmothers but are not. So that today brings a lot of pain to a lot of women you know. And we must remember those and encourage them, not just on the day like today, but remember that's a constant source of pain and sorrow for them. As Elizabeth would have had it, but she has this great delight in holding a small child in her arms, her own child, at advanced age. But we'll look at Mary's story this morning, because I thought, well, this has got to be one of the most important passages of Scripture, the birth of Jesus, as he enters the world. And it must give us some clues about how God works in life. So I thought I'd give you a, a few pointers in that. And here's the first one about things in life. God chooses the moment. His timetable is different from ours, but you knew that already, didn't you? We always say God's timing is perfect. That's usually when his timing is completely out of sync with ours, isn't it? We kind of say it in a kind of, well... I'm holding on to that, but I don't believe it. I thought my timetable was pretty good, actually, and I was hoping God would go through with it, but he hasn't. Now and again, you do have these wonderful stories of people who sell one house and buy another. It happens in two and a half days, and it's all done marvellously well, and they're in before last Wednesday's finished. Well, they're great, and we celebrate with them. But for every one of those stories, I bet you can tell me another story where someone says, well, we had it all done, and then it all fell through, and then we had the house, and then it all fell through, and then we had it all worked out, and then the solicitor died, and we had to start all over again, and a whole raft of different things happened. But tell us that God's timing isn't always ours. But his, he chooses the moment, because it's in the sixth month. Paul will put it like this, when the time had fully come, God sent his son. Fully come. One of the things you get if you read the Old Testament from cover to cover is you think, God is not in a hurry, is he? He's not in a hurry. There are 400 years between Genesis and Exodus. Why don't we know about them and why didn't God sort of shorten that by a lot? There are 40 years in the wilderness. Why didn't God shorten that lot as well? If you go and shorten all the long gaps, you get to the New Testament much more quickly, wouldn't you? But God is working his own timetable out. As, John goes through in, as, sorry, as Jesus goes through in John's gospel, he's constantly telling, telling them, the right time for me has not yet come. For you, he says, any time is right. But for me, the right time has not yet come. And then... And eventually in chapter 12 he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. All through his life Jesus knew a moment would come when the work of God would be fulfilled. And he was eager to wait that time. 
And as we serve God, we must be those kind of people who are patient. Are you patient? It's one of the fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? Do you know how God teaches you patience? By putting you in impatient situations and driving you nuts and showing you more of yourself. That's not very pleasant, is it? And you think you're a nice, calm, and even-handed sort of guy, and then one little thing your little grandson says reveals you're actually a snappish, grumpy old man, actually. I'm speaking about me at this point. And just one little thing triggers something, and you think, oh, I'm not as I was once was. And I need a little grandson to push the buttons down again so I know who I am and can come back to God. And we need to understand the patience that is involved in being one of God's people. We live in an impatient world. If Lynn and I have one of our country trips to London, not very often, we are the country cousins, you can tell us a mile off, but we have to learn to slow down because you actually pick up the pace of all the people beside you, don't you? And you find yourself rushing along the street thinking, but I'm not going anywhere. Why am I walking quickly? And you have actively to slow down and hope people don't bump into you from behind. Because actually cities are very energetic places, aren't they? People in a hurry. So patience. His time play was different from ours. There may be a time of pregnancy before Jesus' birth and fullness, fruitfulness. Well, of course, there is it physically in this case, but that's often the case when God is doing something. He starts something and it takes a while for it to come to fruition. I bet there's been a hope that this garage would be transformed into something more useful than it is for a long time. Those sort of thoughts are in people's minds a long time before they actually come to fruition, don't they? Because there seems to be a moment, isn't there? When suddenly you think, ah, is now the moment? And one or two things happen that make you think, yes, God is saying, now's the moment. At Ashburnham Place, the house was renovated or partially destroyed and then rebuilt, but the prayer centre had to wait much longer. And I remember... That was a, a source of constant agony for many people who knew it. Houses growing out, trees growing out of the houses and all sorts of debris down there. And I remember, if I remember rightly, that it was Peter Woodcraft, who was one of the staff there, who said to the director at that time, Brian Betts, he said, Brian, it's about time we got this thing done. And it wasn't just a frustration of a man who had the building capacity to do it, but I think he was actually God's prompt saying, now some moments has come. We've got to get on with this job. Start. So God chooses the moment and we have to be those people who hear the moment and when it comes, we're ready for it. For Mary, she'll just need to be patient. She's told something and she's just got to be patient. But all will come right. And we just need to be on the lookout for what moments are coming, for which now is the moment. Maybe now is the moment for the garage, but there may be other issues too that as a church you want to think, now this is the moment. We've held this in our hearts for a long time. But God seems to be saying, now, now is the moment. Here's a second thought for you. God chooses his partners. And his criteria are different from ours. God chooses the one through whom he wants to work. Would you have chosen Mary? We don't know much about Mary. What do you know about Mary? Tell me anything you know about Mary. Anything. She was young. That seems to be the general opinion. But we don't know exactly her age. I've heard it guessed at sort of 13. That was an age of marriage. So they weren't married young because actually many of them died in childbirth. And if you're going to get a sort of heritage, you needed to get on with the job. And, and they were stronger then. So she could even have been as young as that. 
Other people put her older, maybe still in her teens, but maybe 19, maybe even 20, I don't know. But no one seems to know quite, but we generally agree that she's young. What else do you know about her? Yeah, with all her hopes and dreams, a young woman engaged to be married, so she hoped to have to marry Joseph and settle down probably in Nazareth. Why would she move? They're not like that in those days. And she maybe had a home earmarked or, or Josie was going to build it for them just beforehand and be close to her parents. You never think of Mary's parents, do you? And um, others. And she was looking forward to establishing a family and being part of the community. And the angel blows a hole in the water, doesn't he? It's a devastating thing. And the angel comes to this young woman. Well, we don't know much else about her, do we, really? She's engaged to be married. She lives in Nazareth. And that's about it, really, isn't it? The rest you pick up as you go along, but we don't know much about her. But God clearly does. And I'm not suggesting that she is the perfect woman. Please don't think that. She's a sinner like the rest of us. But somehow or other, God is going to choose very carefully the woman to be the mother of his son. Isn't he? Different parts of the church elevate Mary to an, I think, untenable position. But other parts of the church, I think, lower her to an untenable position too. I think we have to give her her rightful place. She was God's first choice, wasn't she? For the mother of her son. That says something about who she was. I think it emphasizes perhaps things that we don't usually emphasize and doesn't <coughs> emphasize other things. What is God looking for in this woman? What are the criteria that he's looking for? Is he thinking, yep, she's got that? In the current terminology, she ticks all the boxes. Don't you just hate that? Ticks all the boxes. What does that mean? But anyway, maybe God's thinking, well, is this a woman? In David, he looked like a look for a man after my own heart, is God's description. Is, is that what he's looking for in Mary? Because he seems to have had a very warm and rich relationship with David. There was something special about that. Dave, we know more about David than just about anybody else apart from Jesus in the Bible, don't we? If ever you do a, a, a Bible study on David, you're asking him for trouble because it's going to take you years, isn't it? But plenty of material to choose from. But is it, was it looking for a man after my heart, a girl after my own heart? Is that what Mary is like? Someone who really wants whatever God wants? I think that comes through because Zechariah, when he's told what's going to happen, says, eh? What? Eh? Or words to that effect. And the angel says, well, because you don't believe it, you're not going to be able to speak. And so the angel interpreted his kind of perplexity as disbelief, which doesn't happen here. Mary just goes, oh, right, okay. But not in a disbelieving kind of way. Maybe she's the kind of girl who just walks with God. And when God comes and throws his great big extraordinary thing in her lap, she just says, wow, but holds it. That's the key. She holds it. The writer to the Hebrews says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Is faith what God is looking for? This woman who will do whatever God wants? Well, she does, doesn't she? At the end of this little speech and conversation which she has with the angel, she seems quite comfortable to ask him questions. She says, well, let it be for me as you have said. That's faith, isn't it? Let it be for me as you have said. Is it love? God is looking for as Paul will emphasize to the Corinthians, without love, nothing works. Nothing is valuable. He wants above all, surely, a woman who will love his son, nurture him, bring him up, 
care for him, give her life for him if necessary. That's what mothers do, isn't it? You and I can both recount stories of mothers who truly sacrificed so much. You may be able to tell stories about your own mother who gave up so many things in order to be a mum and never spoke about it. You just wonder it. What about purity? Jesus himself will say, without blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The pure in heart. And in a sense, Mary doesn't seem at all surprised when the angel turns up to see her. She's greatly troubled at his words, but she doesn't seem surprised. Whereas Zechariah, a priest, in the temple, doing priestly work, is completely overwhelmed by the presence of an angel. But Mary doesn't seem surprised. Maybe her relationship with God is an ongoing, good, warm one. And it's almost as if God breaks through in a way that doesn't surprise her. Lynn and I, for a number of years, lived with an old gentleman who shared his bungalow with us and our family, a lovely gentleman. And um, he was a little bit deaf, so when he went to bed at night, we could hear him praying, because he would pray loudly, because he couldn't hear himself, I don't think, anyway. But he had this lovely, you could just hear this burble of sound as he prayed for people. He had a long, long list of people to pray for. And we had to go over there one one day, years after we'd left, um, because the folk in the church who'd went on a pastoral visit couldn't make him up and they knew we had a key, so we went over there and Lynn stayed outside and I went in and I knew what I'd find. There he was in his bed, laying out. And everything in his bungalow was exactly as he would leave it in the evening, exactly. And I could just picture it. I could just picture it. That he'd done all his tidying up, had gone to bed, sat up in bed, prayed his prayer list, laid down, died and said to the Lord, Oh! I was just talking to you. I could just imagine that. And that's the impression you get with Mary here, don't you? That here's Zechariah in the temple about priestly duty. And when, as, he, as it were, a manifestation of one of God's angels turns up beside him, he's really surprised. Whereas Mary doesn't seem that about her ordinary duties. Maybe she's pure in heart. Jesus will say, if you love me, keep my commandments. Maybe obedience is what God wants. Someone who will say yes to him when he brings them a responsibility. And perhaps, maybe even first of all, what God wants is someone who's available. In the Old Testament, it has passages where it says something along the lines of God looked and there was no one. No one. So he came down and did it himself, or words to that effect. And uh, you have in the story of Isaiah, with his vision of God in the temple and he overhears God saying now who should we send and who will go for us in a kind of stage whisper and Isaiah said I'll go and maybe that's what God was looking for someone who will be available to him because if it doesn't matter how good we are if we're not available to him we're not much good and Mary is both willing and available to God God chooses his partners how do we measure up to God's specifications. I'm not saying we have to be perfect. Please don't think that. But we have to have hearts towards God, don't we? And here's another thought for you. Every work of God begins with a prophetic word. This chapel was built on a prophetic word, wasn't it? You can just imagine the scene, can't you? Where people gather together and said, we've got to do something for the spiritual welfare of the people in this, this town. And this chapel was born out of a spiritual word. We go to another little chapel not far away from here 
who moved about, I think, about 15 years ago. They moved from where they had been for many, many, many years, just down the road. It was a move born of God. God said, I want you to move. And you could have said, what? what's the point of moving a mile down the road? What's the point in that? But actually, it's proved to be very good. But it began with a word from God. Every work of God begins with a prophetic word. Mary, you will be with child and give birth to a son. And you'll give him the name Jesus. In Amos 3, 7, we're told that God does nothing without telling his servants, the prophets, beforehand what will happen. This is one of the ways we can, <clears throat> we can communicate with God. He communicates to us. He tells us beforehand what's going to happen. He doesn't tell us everything. And aren't you glad about that? I'm so glad God didn't tell me lots of things that were going to happen in my life. I really am glad. They were bad enough when they came. I didn't want to know beforehand. <clears throat> but at the same time, God does tell us things beforehand to raise our faith, to get us in the right frame of mind to get us looking forward in the right direction. And God's word is creative, isn't it? As we'd see from the book of Genesis, in the beginning God said, let there be, and there was. Creation leaps into being. So Joseph is instructed to support and protect without interfering. So some words are instructive. We hear those words and we have to do something about it. And Joseph hears God say, do not interfere, just protect her. But some words are to be received and no direct action is required. Mary, you will be with child and it will have nothing to do with you. Don't do anything. It will happen to you. So some words require us to act and we need to know what they are so we can do them. But some words simply need us to hold on and pray. And I think for every word of God that starts a work, there have been people praying. They were given a word a long time before that and just were praying it into being. Isn't that right? We prayed for our son-in-law long before we ever met him. We were praying for Rachel's husband, whoever he would be. We were praying for him. There's nothing we could do about that. We couldn't go around searching for him. But I could tell him, you're the answer to a prayer, our prayer. We were praying. We wanted our daughter to be married to the man of God who would love her and love God. So some words just need to be received and held on to, to let God work it through. So all the time we have to be thinking, have we heard from God? Have we done what is necessary? I find it not an easy thing to keep the word of God before me. I know of one pastor who, one of his practices, in his drawer of his desk, he has a series of envelopes. And when he believes he's had a significant word from God, he writes it down and puts it in an envelope in date order. And every now and again, he says, I take them out and look at them to see if there's anything I should do at the moment about them. And if there is, I do it. If there's not, I just put it back and move through them all to make sure I'm up to date with those words of God, that they're always before me. We need to find ways of keeping the word of God before us so we know we're up to date with those things or simply praying it through, if that's the case. And of course then, here's the fourth point, there must be a responsive word from us. God is at work, but not on his own. That's the intriguing thing. He draws us into uh, fellowship with him. And many of the lovely phrases that could have gone up on that, um, uh, that delightful video would have included things like mothers being God's servants or something in a very special way. It would have been true. Mothers in very genuine ways express the compassion and love of God, even 
are used by God. Can a mother forget the child at her breast? Yet even if it were so, I will not forget you, says God in Isaiah, and uses that very illustration. But it must also call from us a response. And Mary's response is just magnificent. May it be to me as you have said. Mary has a relationship with God and she trusts God. He's handed her an explosive device. He's put a time bomb in her hands. He said, forget your plans. I've got bigger plans. But she says, that's okay. You can do it. <clears throat> because as you well know, she's going to become pregnant. You can't keep that hidden. And there come a time when Joseph will notice. And he will know it wasn't him. So what is he going to think, poor chap? He's going to think she's been adulterous before they're married. So what's he going to do? At the very least, he's not going to marry her because that would taint him with the same brush and he would be accused of being the perpetrator of this heinous crime and the two of them could have been stoned to death. Or he could be, worst scenario, the first one to throw the stone. So all her dreams come crashing down. But she says, it's okay, Lord. If that's what you want to do, I bow to you. It's extraordinary faith, I think. And I don't want to overplay it, but I think you can easily underplay that. She's just had all her hopes and dreams and wishes blown apart. But she says, it's okay, Lord. May it be to me as you have said. Because she trusts God. She trusts God. And I love to see pictures of mothers cuddling their children. And children who've been crying, running to their mothers. Or fathers, it works with fathers too, just as well. And just want to be held and cuddled. Not because the mother is now going to explain everything to the child, but because the child instinctively knows you're safe with the mother. It's okay. So the very worst crimes, the ones we recoil at worst of all, are the ones perpetrated by mothers upon their children. Aren't they? That's what works us up in a way that we don't get worked up by anything else because in this very strong relationship where a child should trust completely the mother. It's turned on its head. So Mary trusts God and says yes. And because of that yes, the creative word of God is released. Here's another thought. God's work is impossible for us alone. How will this be? Says Mary. I'm a virgin. I don't see how that's going to work out. If I have sex with a man, it's just going to be normal, isn't it? So how's it going to work out? I can't work it out. It's impossible. Well, God would say, yes, it is impossible. But yeah, as the angel reminds her here, nothing is impossible with God. A phrase that ought to be engraved deep on our hearts, isn't it? Nothing is impossible with God. We're not talking about striking matches on jelly and silly things like that. We're talking about when God wants something done, he can accomplish it, however impossible it seems. On our own, Jesus will say later on, you can do nothing, but with me, anything is possible. With Christ, we can do all he asks of us. So it's not only impossible for us alone, but it's also bigger than us alone. That's my final point. God's work is bigger than us alone. See, Mary has a res receives this visitation of an angel. 
Zechariah and Elizabeth have a conversation and, and then discover that Elizabeth's pregnant. But it's not just for them. For Mary and Joseph, they are blessed with a son, which would be a great delight for any couple who want children. It would be a great joy for any children. But it's more than that. In this particular case, it's a blessing for Israel. God is saying, I've heard your cries. I've come to visit you. Here's your Messiah. So he's not just for Mary and Joseph, but he's not even just for the Jews. Of course, as Luke will take pains to show us in his 24 chapters, Jesus is the saviour of the world. So when God gets working, it's not just working for something to bless us. The blessing gives, God gives to us is always bigger than for us alone. It's to give away and to bring blessing. And let me encourage you, if you feel like you want to, just let your mind roam over during today, the mothers or the women in the Bible. And notice how many of them, in ordinary small lives, actually played a part far bigger than they ever knew. Did Mary ever really know the effect that her son would have upon the world? She maybe guessed some of it, but surely she never knew quite the effect he would have. But she undertook her role very well. She was just a mother. A wife and a mother. But we are eternally grateful to God for her. And for his generous ways. Let me pray. Your ways, Father, are past finding out. But nonetheless... We thank you for the way your spirit can help us understand some of the aspects of what you do so that we, living today, can look in our own circumstances to see the hand of God in similar ways. So, Father, as we celebrate motherhood today and all that Mother's Day means, we want to appreciate you, Lord, most of all. And for the way that you draw mothers and fathers, men and women, single and married, boys and girls from every race into your wonderful work of saving the world. So let your blessing, Lord, rest upon us that we might be as blessed people, a blessing to our communities. In Jesus' name, amen.